Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. Thank you for tuning in and thank you for supporting this podcast. I appreciate it. And today's podcast is about dietary intervention in cancer. Should you do ketogenic diet? Should you do plant-based diet? Is it going to affect the outcomes? Is it going to affect the response to treatment? Is it going to help patients? I uh, am really very uh, uh, pleased and uh, honored to have two phenomenal researchers who are joining me on today's podcast um, because I read uh, a paper that uh, actually they um, published in JAMA Oncology about uh, looking at ketogenic diet and plant-based diet and the impact on uh, cancer patients. Dr. Neil Iyengar at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and Dr. Irvi Shah also at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Neil studies uh, breast cancer and Irvi studies myeloma. However, both of them study the impact of diet on patients with cancer. And I find this topic and this subject fascinating. We will start talking about obesity, and there's a lot of controversy, in my opinion, on the impact of obesity and all cancers or certain cancers. There are some stronger links, for example, between obesity and endometrial cancer or gallbladder cancer, and I think there are much weaker links with other cancers. And we talk about these studies, and then we pivot into the impact of diet and the type of research these two amazing researchers are doing for uh, diet and uh, cancer. Uh, So uh, hopefully you enjoyed today's podcast, and hopefully you continue to let me know how I'm doing by subscribing to the show, rating the show, and writing a brief review about the show. You can refer friends and colleagues to Healthcare Unfiltered. For that, I am eternally grateful. Without further ado, Dr. Neil Iyengar and Dr. Irvi Shah on Healthcare Unfiltered discussing diet and cancer. We'll start with uh, some introductions. So, uh, Dr. Shah, Irvi, go ahead. Hi, everyone. I'm Urvi Shah, a hematologist and oncologist on the myeloma service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center with a strong interest in diet and its mechanisms on how it impacts cancer outcomes. We're going to talk about how you got interested in this because I'm not seeing the link between myeloma and this, but I would like to understand it more. And then uh, uh, Neil, Dr. Iyengar, go ahead. Great. Thank you. Uh, So my name is Neil Iyengar and I'm a medical oncologist uh, clinically specialized in, in the care of breast cancer. Uh, my research interest, uh, similar to Irvi's, is uh, looking at the intersections of metabolic health and tumor progression. We started from a very biologically oriented perspective doing tissue-based uh, correlative studies. And having identified the processes through which metabolic dysfunction promotes tumor growth, we've now moved into the intervention space through lifestyle interventions such as diet and exercise and even medications that modify those metabolic endpoints to improve cancer outcomes. So I want to I wanna first start by understanding what got you interested in this. So Irvi, I mean, what, I don't know, is there a story behind this? It's not really the typical thing that somebody is interested in career-wise yeah. and research-wise. So I'd say there are multiple factors. So one is that I actually had Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2016, and I was an oncology fellow in my first year at that time. And at that time, what was interesting to me is like family and friends were trying to tell me what to eat and not. And me as an oncologist, I I kept saying like, I'm an oncologist, so I know what's best for me. Um, But I thought that it was interesting that as I went through my fellowship and even my residency training, I never really got any education around this topic. And so that was when I decided to start reading up on it. And the more I read, the more I found it interesting and thought there was a lot of links and associations. And then um, there's also like, you know, when I was, I was always interested in blood cancers. So my interests were in either lymphoma or myeloma. And when I joined as faculty, 
I was always interested in doing a trial like this, but I couldn't do it as a fellow. So when I joined as a faculty, I reached out to Neil actually and said, I want to develop this in the myeloma side. And I know you said there's no link between myeloma and um, this thing and uh, diet, but actually, you know, there are quite a few papers looking at this and it's just not talked about. And so <laughs> through this work, we've been trying to spread awareness and that 13 cancers associated with obesity and myeloma is one of them. So there is dietary epidemiologic studies with myeloma, three of them. There are um, this obesity and myeloma association and then um, inflammation, microbiome, diabetes, all these things play into risk factors. So we're basically studying how we can impact these modifiable risk factors to improve them and reduce the odds of either progression from MGUS or smoldering to myeloma or development of myeloma and the outcomes. And one last point is that MGUS and smoldering myeloma, while myeloma is not that common, MGUS and smoldering myeloma, which are precursor states to myeloma, are very common in the ages over 50, right? So it's more than 3% of the population have this. So I think there's a huge population that's anxious about getting a cancer, and this is a way we can prevent it. Um, look into how we could affect the outcomes with it. But it really started to you when you were diagnosed with this disease and you saw a lot of interest from family members. And, and I'm, I'm glad to see you're doing excellent and, and well and uh, very happy to see that. So congratulations on, on, on great outcome. Neil, what's your story? What got you interested in that? So, you know, I've always had a, a scientific interest in hormone signaling. Um, even starting as an undergrad, I worked in a lab that studied testosterone biosynthesis and its implications on aging. And clinically, I've always had an interest in, in the care of, of patients with cancer. So when I came to my fellowship training, I was very fortunate uh, to be mentored by uh, Cliff Huddis, who was really pioneering the work in obesity and cancer at that time, specifically in, in breast cancer and obesity. This was um, more than 10 years ago now. And since then, I've been really focused on kind of merging those, that scientific interest with the clinical interest. And breast cancer was the perfect place to do that because of course, this is a very hormonally driven cancer typically. Uh, and certainly obesity dysregulates uh, paracrine and hormone signaling. So we then linked up with uh, Andy Dannenberg, who was the director of the Cancer Prevention Center at Cornell, doing this kind of work on the preclinical side. And we participated in a series of translational studies, bench to bedside, where we really elucidated the mechanisms through which obesity can promote breast cancer, prostate cancer, uh, several other cancers as well, and, and even cancers we wouldn't typically think of as obesity-related cancers, such as squamous cell carcinoma of the oral tongue. Uh, and as, as Urvi mentioned, there are at least 13 obesity-related cancers, but there are probably more than 13 cancers that are somehow modified or regulated by metabolism. Uh, and I mean our broad metabolism in our body, insulin signaling, hormone signaling. So that's what really brought me to this work. And in the last few years, having identified that biology, as I mentioned earlier, we've now turned to interventions uh, with uh, biologic endpoints that we can actually modify. And I was very fortunate uh, when, when Urvi approached me because I have zero training and expertise in myeloma. And I think this is an area that, that really needs this kind of work. So she's doing some exciting trials there in addition to some of the trials that we're doing in breast and other cancers. So, Irvi, um, when you say obesity-related cancers, I mean, so you're in clinic, you're seeing a patient, let's take myeloma as an example, or I don't know, breast cancer, since you're talking breast cancer or myeloma. Um, I, I can understand how certain elements increase the risk of a particular cancer versus another. But are you able to look a patient in the eye and you tell me, I'm in your clinic, can you tell me I developed myeloma because I am obese? Or you can tell me my obesity increased the risk, you know, could be one-fold, two-fold, 1.5, whatever it is, to develop this. Yeah, so I, 
I, in clinic, I don't just see multiple myeloma. I also see the precursor disorders, MGAS and smoldering myeloma, which have a risk of progression to myeloma over the years. Not everybody progresses. The majority don't, but some do. So there's significant anxiety for these patients in terms of the risk of progression. So being able to talk to them about modifiable risk factors, I think sometimes empowers patients instead of making them feel um, targeted. And the way I bring it up is I think that every patient is at a different stage in their disease or time and also receptive to listening. So I think I, I, I bring it up if a patient seems like they're interested or wanting to know what they can do. So I don't, I don't just say it to every patient, but I do bring up like, if they ask me what else could diet be related? And I think, you know, we published on this for plasma cell disorders over we interviewed over 421 plasma cell disorder patients, and most of them had questions about diet and felt that they were not getting these answers from their oncologists. So patients asked no, me this no, all I mean, the, time. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. no question. I mean, I think, look, we all promote healthy lifestyle. I mean, I think, yeah. I think um, you know, we, we all should promote healthy lifestyle and exercise and so on. But I guess, and maybe Neil can chime in a little bit, I guess what I am trying to understand you know, for example, we all know exercise is good for you. And we actually know that exercise, there's a lot of studies on exercise and tolerance to chemotherapy and side effects, all of that stuff. But, you know, if somebody is not exercising and not really walking and whatever exercises, can you really tell them, well, the reason you developed this is because you did not exercise. Had you exercised, this would not have happened. I don't think we can say that. I think it's multifactorial. So we can just say that we can we can reduce the risk factors or reduce the odds of it, but we can't say that it is truly because of one thing, and especially myeloma is multifactorial often. You know, Neil, I gotta tell you, the reason I, I bring this up is because one of the things, and clearly I'm not a breast cancer expert, but one of the things that always fascinated me is how many papers are out there. I should have prepared this for today's podcast. How many papers out there talks about alcohol and breast cancer, whether it's three drinks, two drinks. I think I lost track where things stand. You know what I mean? Like, you know, yeah. I mean, so if you drink two glasses of wine a week is okay. If I drink four, I'm going to get breast cancer. It just seems to me, I don't know. So help me out. You're the expert. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's a tough question, but I, I think that it is so relevant when we're sitting there right face to face with the patient for any type of cancer. My, my view on this is you know, we, have, we have a wide body of research into various risk factors that can promote the development of cancer. And for some of those risk factors, we know with a fair degree of certainty how, what the magnitude of impact is. We know what the hazard ratio of a certain amount of alcohol is versus another amount of alcohol. Uh, and, and the latest studies, speaking of alcohol, have shown now that any amount of alcohol can be potentially bad. But if we understand how much risk it poses, then I feel like we can make more informed decisions in our lives. And we have less information about that for nutrition and for exercise. And if we can sit with the patient and we can say something as exact as, if you eat in this pattern, you're increasing your risk of developing a cancer by X percent then that person can make an educated choice about balancing their quality of life if they love a certain food that may not be particularly healthy and whether or not they should consume it. That's sort of my general philosophy on, on how we can bring some of this research down into the individual level from a risk perspective. So is there recent data that any amount of alcohol increases the risk of breast cancer? There, there is, unfortunately, uh, some of the, and, and these are all observational epidemiologic studies, of course, and, and there does not seem to be a threshold of, of a safe amount of alcohol consumption, at least in terms of breast cancer. But if you look at the very small amounts of alcohol and, and the, the magnitude of impact on risk, it's equally small. And, and so people can make informed decisions about what they'd like to do. Yeah, I see. So, um, uh, Irvi, you, you mentioned something earlier, You, I, I, either 12 or 13, what you call them obesity-related cancers. I guess, I don't know, maybe you can share what you think uh, these are and tell me what you mean by obesity-related, but maybe what, what are these 13 that you, you believe they are obesity-related? So it's not what I believe, but it's any GM paper that's there, which has all 13 cancers where they've pulled all the data from other studies and shown what the odds are with 
having a higher BMI versus. And so the 13 cancers amongst them, breast cancer, multiple myeloma are two of them. And the one with the highest risk is actually endometrial cancer, which often we don't think about as a cancer driven by obesity, but it has the highest odds with obesity. So um, I would say that one definitely, you know, if to reduce the odds, we need to consider that. With the others, it's, it's varying degrees. Other cancers, I think there is meningioma, there's... Um, I remember, go, I remember gallbladder cancer when I was in residency. your carcinoma. Um, Neil, you can add, and I don't remember all 30, yeah, I think. Yeah. But, the, but uh, there was uh, this is there was a paper published. I was researching a little bit about this. There was a paper published in Lancet, I believe, when they listed some of these. And I think uh, I recall I read the gallbladder and the uh, thyroid, like you mentioned, and cholangiocarcinoma. In terms of, uh, but, but I like the idea. There's a spectrum. I mean, I, I know yeah. for me, for me as somebody who believes in uncertainty, I. I grew to realize the binary thing of yes, no is very difficult because um, it's, it's, there's so many other factors. Uh, to Irvi's point, the multifactorial in myeloma is really so, so critical. Neil, how do you study these? Uh, like what methodology do you use? And then we'll go into intervention a little bit. I'm trying to better understand the methodology of, of studying, you know, for example, you can take me through the alcohol and maybe Irby can take me through the obesity and pre-myeloma just to understand the methodology. How do you do that? Yeah, I, I mean, and I think it would actually be easier for me to talk just sort of broadly because this is something we've definitely wrestled with and we've actually written papers uh, about the methodologies for approaching these questions. Um, you know, generally speaking in this field of work, most of the hypotheses are generated by observational data. And oftentimes, at least in the last, before the last few years, it sort of ends there too, especially when it comes to nutritional research, right? We, we hear new studies every day about this food is associated with cancer risk, that food is protective against cancer risk and so forth, conflicting data, et cetera. Uh, but of course, the next step then is to understand the biologic rationale and starting in the preclinical space is an ideal space to do that. So what we do then is we take these epidemiologic observations, for example, alcohol or certain foods or obesity or inflammation are associated with the development of, let's say, breast cancer. Then we go to the laboratory and, and we work with our collaborators there to set up models and understand how this works and to try to identify biologic targets uh, that can be used as not only biomarkers, but also modifiable markers to assess the success of our trials. That's what we did uh, with breast cancer and obesity. In mouse models of obesity, we see mammary fat inflammation that produces estrogen and also produces cytokines that are direct stimulants of cancer growth. And then we were able to translate that into the human. And we've published now five or six years ago that we actually find adipose tissue inflammation in the breast of humans, typically those who are obese, but also those who are normal weight obesity. And that inflammation is associated with breast cancer recurrence. But fortunately now we can use that adipose tissue inflammation as a biomarker. And we're now conducting clinical trials where we're looking at whether or not we can reduce that adipose tissue inflammation amongst other biomarkers that were identified uh, in the mouse models. Very interesting. So, Irvi, in the in the pre myeloma space, how do you study that? Yeah, so we're we're doing it. I think both all different ways. So one is I think the the epidemiologic data as robust as it is in breast cancer, it's not as robust in myeloma. So we're looking at epidemiologic data sets to understand the link between um, diet and MGAS or diet and myeloma and things like that. Um, that's one way. But once we know these associations, then I think it's more important to study it as trials, as interventional to understand maybe mechanisms. So the we actually have a pilot study that's ongoing where we have patients with MGAS and smoldering myeloma with a BMI over 25. And for them, we're giving them a very healthy, unprocessed plant food diet for three months. And uh, nutrition counseling for six months and we follow them for a year collecting microbiome 
uh, meaning stool samples, blood, bone marrow, all of these things before and after. So with that, we're able to look at the changes in the microbiome over time with the diet um, changes on the effect of like weight loss and also inflammation markers or things like that. So I think some of that helps us. And then in the long term, we would look at trajectories of maybe myeloma proteins if we see any changes with that. But understanding the mechanisms from um, just giving a diet and then looking at all these correlative tests to epigenetics, the microbiome, inflammation, um, those are different ways in which we're looking at it through patient samples. And then in terms of looking at mouse models or things, I think there are other investigators looking at the microbiome in mouse models for myeloma progression, but we're also looking at epigenetics like that with some collaborators. This is really interesting, but but um, and again, um, you know, Neil or 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 Irvi, what I'm trying to, I mean, listening to what Irvi was mentioning, right? What she said is, you have an MGUS patient, and you let's say BMI over 25, you collect the information, you do the diet, and you see what happens. We're going to go over the diet, which is the subject of your paper. But that strikes a question in my simple mind. So how can you even tell, like, if, 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 I mean, how long do you need to be obese to even have a risk factor? I mean, so my God, I mean, weight changes all the time. So uh, I am, my BMI is 27 today and uh, it's 24 tomorrow. And then two years later, I'm back to 27. And it just seems to me so, such a moving target that my simple mind is struggling in having making a link. So both of you need to help me. We'll start with Irvi. So I, I wanted to add to that, that um, when we're trying to study it through mechanisms, I don't think we need decades to look at the changes, especially things like the microbiome. There are studies which show like the microbiome changes in as quickly as a few weeks of a diet even. So that actually, now that we have such good technologies to study the microbiome, epigenetics, these things and inflammation, things like that, they can change very quickly with diet. In the past, when people did dietary clinical trials, I think they were looking at clinical endpoints only, and those readouts could take a long time, and you need huge population sizes to do those kind of studies. Here, we have the population-level data saying that there are these associations, but what we're trying to do with these smaller studies is truly understand mechanisms of how these things might impact the different factors. Um, yeah. I so guess, Neil, yeah, I... I... I agree. I guess what I was, what I, what I meant is the clinical endpoint, the mechanistic yeah. piece change. And I think you could see that in vitro and all of that stuff, but uh, from a clinical yeah, I, perspective. I, you know, I would add that in, in, on the clinical perspective, there have been some longitudinal studies, at least in breast cancer that have looked at um, the, the timing of weight loss or weight gain and the impact on cancer risk and outcomes. But generally speaking, I view obesity or other metabolic syndrome issues like insulin resistance or diabetes. Uh, these are chronic disorders typically. And the longer the exposure to a carcinogen, and I view obesity or obesity-related inflammation as a carcinogen, the longer one has exposure to this, the higher the risk of the cancer. I mean, you could even, I mean, this is a very reductionist view, but you could even view it as, as, as smoking, for example. The longer a person smokes, the higher their risk. Once a person stops smoking, of course, the risk starts to come down. It may not go down all the way to a, non, a lifelong non-smoker, but the risk does come down. Similarly, albeit not as, as much or as great of a magnitude as smoking, uh, these chronic metabolic conditions expose someone to a cancer risk, and the longer a person is exposed, the higher their risk. Yeah, I think that the duration is what, um, the duration of exposure to me is, um, is what I mean. If somebody is obese all their life, I get that. But I think sometimes the weight fluctuates so often, uh, and the BMI has changed. That's why I, I sometimes struggle with uh, with that particular piece. Um, but I presume this is really what led to your interest in dietary inter interventions. You started by looking at obesity, and then you mentioned that you started looking at interventions. Take me through how do you, like what kind of intervention you start studying and, and how do you implement those? I think that's probably is a nice segue into the paper that you, you, you wrote, which was fascinating, frankly. Yeah, uh, and, and um, 
re-guide me if I go off a subject a little bit. My computer froze for a second. It's but healthcare unfiltered. There's no subject <laughs> off topic. You can say whatever you want. It's unfiltered. Good. Good, 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 good. So I did catch the end of your question there. So, um, you know, we, we became very interested, I became very interested in interventions, because we kept generating data, as in terms of the biologic data as to how obesity or how insulin resistance uh, can make things worse for people in terms of cancer risk and cancer outcomes. Uh, but of course, as a physician, the, the next question you ask is how can we make things better? And fortunately, at least in breast cancer, colon cancer, and several solid tumors, there has been uh, a large body of work for lifestyle interventions. Uh, a lot of uh, work has, has uh, grown because of behavioral scientists who've essentially shown that lifestyle interventions, especially in breast cancer, can reduce the risk of long-term treatment side effects and can also make people feel better during their cancer therapy. But the preclinical data started to tell us that some of these interventions like exercise may actually help to have a direct anti-tumor effect or may actually help to prevent the development of resistance to certain therapies, especially some targeted therapies, for example. So that gave rise to the question that can we take highly controlled lifestyle interventions to address a very specific biologic endpoint as it relates to tumor biology and alter things for the better. Then that led to a series of dose finding trials, just like you would do with a drug. We have uh, phase one, phase one uh, uh, A, one B, phase two exercise trials, where we're testing multiple doses of exercise in different settings uh, to try to identify the appropriate dose for that setting. Same with diet. We have several different dietary trials that are testing different types of diets or different variations of a diet. Uh, either in combination with exercise or alone uh, in different types of breast cancer or with different types of breast cancer treatment. And ultimately our goal is that we can develop very specific guidelines or recommendations for lifestyle interventions using the same paradigm that you would to develop a new drug to treat cancer uh, to develop this kind of specificity. And I always say, I'm not a behavioral scientist, and so our trials are highly controlled. We deliver pre-prepared meals to people. We deliver treadmills to people and we prescribe the type of exercise that they should be doing. Uh, and ultimately that may not be sustainable as a broad public health endeavor, but it gives us a starting point so that when the behavioral scientists are able to tell us how to change people's behavior, we know what type of behavior we should be striving for for each specific type of cancer. That's sort of the blue sky vision and, and the process that brought me there. It's fascinating that you would deliver the treadmills and the pre-prepare, I mean, this is really, I agree with you, Neil. I, I don't know, I don't think it's sustainable. I think we can all agree to that, but it's certainly a good proof of principle that you may change behavior. When it comes to um, studying the dietary intervention, for, forget the type of diet, but when it comes to this, yeah. Uh, or let's say exercise, I think, because Neil mentioned exercise. You're doing exercise in addition of antineoplastic therapy. So it's not like you're telling a patient, I'm just going to have you run on the treadmill and the myeloma will go away. You're saying, I'm going to do, I recommend exercise in addition to the current therapy, whatever it is. How, how do you isolate the impact of exercise versus other interventions you are prescribing to your patients? That's a great question. The only thing I'll say is that I am actually just now not doing exercise trials or trials in the myeloma newly diagnosed space yet. But what we are doing is we're looking at it in the um, preclinical space, meaning precursor space. So we're looking at MGUS and smoldering myeloma where the standard of care is observation. So all the effect that we see is likely to be the dietary effect. And that's the reason we started there. Um, and a lot of our interest in that came from the microbiome because there are studies showing that certain bacteria are associated with progression or associated with more increased likelihood of response. And looking at studies outside of myeloma showing that certain diets can increase these good bacteria, can we modulate that for patients and see if that can affect long-term trajectories? Neil, same question. How do you isolate the impact of one intervention versus another? Because you're doing so, you know, you're giving a woman, for example, adjuvant therapy, right? And you're saying, I recommend you exercise and whatever it is. How do you 
Are you, is that like statistics? You just get a good statistician and you try to figure it out? I, I mean, that's certainly part of it um, and, and, and an important part of it. Um, but we do try to, to tease that out. And there are you know, methods to do this. We can, we can assess a person's dietary intake through recall procedures, food logging. Now there's apps that do this. We can track a person's exercise or physical activity. Uh, for example, in our trials, we give everyone a con- what we call a continuous lifestyle monitoring kit, which is essentially a watch that they wear, which tracks their physical activity, their heart rate, their patterns. Um, they have a body composition scale at home and weigh themselves every day. We put a, a, a mat under their mattress so that we can assess their sleeping patterns. And we'd really try to get an idea comprehensively of a person's lifestyle behaviors so that we can control for some of those variables when we analyze which part of the intervention is affecting which biologic outcome. Fascinating. So let's talk about diet now. Exercise is one intervention that I believe uh, you both commented on, although it seems like it's a little bit more mature in the breast cancer, maybe some other solid tumors. But then diet. Um, Irving, maybe the, you know, tell us about the various types of diets and I'm just going to warn you already. I do like French fries. I like sweets. If you follow my Twitter feed, I'm, you know, so please be conscious of that. Be nice. So that's the right kind of diet. then. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, so, so there's a lot of diets out there. My God, I mean, you go yeah. just to a bookstore and there's like a whole shelf of diets. So, you know, separate for us the signal from the noise, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a great question because looking at every study, people can get pretty confused because every study is saying a slightly different thing. But what I see when I see all these dietary trends or patterns, there's one thing that comes out from all of them is that the majority of foods that reduce risk of cancer are plant-based foods, high in fiber and unprocessed. And the majority of foods that increase the risk of cancer are, are either processed foods fried, sugary, or animal-based foods. And if we take any diet, so suppose you take a Mediterranean diet or you know a, these other kinds of plant-based dietary patterns, a vegetarian diet or a pescatarian or a vegan diet, all of them, the common theme that the benefits coming from, I think is the unprocessed plant foods. And so having that as the bulk of any diet is probably important. And then the last 20% can be whatever, or 10% can be what a person really believes in or wants. So they don't, like you could be a plant-based keto, or you could be a plant-based Mediterranean or a plant-based you know, vegetarian, but that whole food plant-based is what's the important part, I think, in any diet. Can you... You know, a lot of my listeners are not necessarily physicians or, or in the medical field. Give us a little bit more color when you say plant-based diet. I, you know, what do I buy in the store exactly? So we're talking about fruits, vegetables, beans, seeds, nuts, grains, legumes. Le- grains, I mean whole grains. So we're talking about all unprocessed foods. So you can, they can all be cooked, obviously, but it just would be not um, fried or not uh, processed significantly. So it would be the beans as they would be cooked with a whole grain, suppose. That can you have a, can you have a grilled chicken, grilled salmon, uh, mushroom? So, so that would not, yeah, that would not be part of the plant-based part of it. So it, my, my what I'm trying to say is that the plant-based part of these food groups that I said should should be about ninety percent or something, some number like that, and then that last. 10%, you know, I think every person to their own, if somebody wants the chicken or the French fries or something, though, I think that those wouldn't, you know, there's no data saying that those decrease risk and some data showing that they increase risk. But we know with the plant-based, there is data for decreasing risk. Neil, I am mandating a secondary endpoint of quality of life. <laughs> well, you know, we, we, are we, doing that. we do that. Um, and believe it or not, in all of the trials that have been done so far, quality of life goes up in the exercise arms and in the dietary arms. Yeah. Um, so tell us, I mean, again, in terms of the um, plant-based diet, this is not keto diet, no. right? Right. They're, di- they're different. So what is, I think Uri mentioned the plant diet, what is the keto diet? 
Right. So, so the ketogenic diet is, is as the name stands, it's really a diet that is centered around um, developing ketosis, um, which is essentially a state that our body goes into. You can think of it as almost a near starvation state. Um, it's shifting our body to a different source of energy to sustain us. And that's ketones um, because we're not necessarily putting in simple carbohydrates or really that many carbohydrates in general, which tend to be the first macronutrient that our body goes to for energy, uh, then we need to shift into a different uh, type of energy reliance. And that reliance is on, on ketones. In order to do that, we have to dramatically reduce the amount of carbohydrates that we consume. Uh, otherwise, our body won't shift into that kind of uh, energy reliance. And that uh, there are various definitions of ketogenic diets. Generally speaking, um, we try to minimize carbohydrate intake to less than about 40 grams per day, 30 to 40 grams um, per day. Just for reference, you can consider a low carb diet to be less than 100 grams of carbohydrates um, per day. And because of that, that's really the crux of the ketogenic diet. Because of that, the diet tends to stress other macronutrients like protein, for example. And perhaps the easiest source of protein for us to find and consume is animal-based protein. Um, certainly, and we'll talk about this later, uh, but certainly there are many plant-based protein sources out there. Uh, and it is possible to do a plant-based ketogenic diet, although difficult, but possible. Um, but because of the abundance of, of animal products, it's easiest to get our protein from animal-based products. And in a ketogenic diet where you're eating predominantly protein, um, that tends to be a predominantly animal-based um, diet. And what goes with that as well is, is fat consumption. Um, the diet doesn't necessarily stress increased fat consumption, but there is a lot of, of lipid uh, in animal-based products. And so we do tend to see increased lipid intake that also helps with satiety uh, with the ketogenic diet. That can be helpful in certain, certain circumstances. It can reduce our desire to, uh, to consume simple carbohydrates. Uh, but in some circumstances, it may not be the best strategies. High, high fat diets have been associated with worse outcomes in breast cancer, for example. Although I will caveat and say that there are certain very specific types of breast cancer that may actually benefit from the ketogenic diet, which is why we're doing those trials. Anyways, that's a long answer to no, say. No, 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 it's, 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 a, diet it's, it's a great answer, but there are so many people out there that really swear by the keto diet. In fact, when I've Irvi and I, when we first met, we were like doing a clubhouse on keto diet. And it's just, I mean, there are, you know, there's a, there's a huge support for keto diet. So are these folks, uh, I don't know. I mean, you both have to answer this. A uh, couple of ketogenic diet gurus will be listening to this. Be careful. <laughs> so I was going to say that um, keto diets can also be of, I, I want to say two things. One is that keto diets, like Neil said, you have to have such little carbohydrate that in, in a general setting to do it long term is very difficult. So a lot of people who think they're doing keto diets are actually doing low carb diets because they're not really getting to that state of ketosis. And when you are doing a low carb diet, you feel better probably because you're eliminating all the refined sugars and refined sugars in any diet are bad. So I would say even if it's a plant-based diet, we don't want the refined sugars. We want the whole carbohydrates or the unrefined, unprocessed grains. And, and then the other thing I wanted to mention is that when we say keto diet, we're not really fully explaining what kind of a diet a person is on, because I think keto diet can also be of many varieties. So you could be on a keto diet where you're mostly eating fried meats and um, red meats and processed meats and things like that. And then, or you could be on a keto diet where you're having avocados, nuts, fish, maybe things like that. Both of them are going to be high fat, low carb, but the quality of the fat and the quality of the protein is very different in these two. So I think when people just talk about a keto diet, I think it's important to understand what kind of keto diet and that probably changes in terms of the risk of like, you know, some people do have elevations in LDL cholesterol after a keto diet or some even have fatigue develop or things like that. So it really depends. 
Yeah, you know, I'll just add to Irvi. I think she explained it beautifully. Um, we're not necessarily, sometimes it can come off this way, but we're not necessarily vilifying a ketogenic diet. I, I think one of the central tenets, at least, especially for obesity-related cancers, is to avoid obesity. And so if a particular individual, if, if their path to success to avoiding obesity is a ketogenic diet, uh, then that's great. That, that can be their tool to avoid obesity. And then when I sit down with an individual who is on a ketogenic diet and who has been diagnosed with breast cancer, let's say, then we talk about ways to um, modify or refine the ketogenic diet in many of the ways that we just mentioned in terms of incorporating either plant-based sources of protein and fats or reducing some of the ultra highly processed foods um, that may be technically okay from a macronutrient perspective in a ketogenic diet but that have been associated with cancer risk. So it's certainly an effective weight management strategy. It can be an effective strategy for maintaining good body composition, muscle mass to fat ratio, uh, but we're oncologists. And so we're primarily interested in the cancer question. And that's why we're sort of having this conversation about not necessarily overall, what's the better diet, but how can we get to that endpoint of reducing cancer risk and improving outcomes? So, Neil, is it fair to say that for the non-cancer patient population, maybe the ketogenic diet is better than the plant-based? Maybe. We don't know. You, you both have not studied that. You've studied that in the cancer population, correct? Yeah, um, that, that's right. Um, but of course, I would argue that the non-cancer population is at risk for developing cancer. And there, you know, we do see evidence that certain uh, components of the plant-based diet have been clearly associated with reduction of risk. Uh, and as Orvi mentioned earlier, uh, some of the foods that, for example, animal-based proteins may not uh, in that in by themselves increase risk, but may not be associated with reducing risk either. So I would say for the general population, uh, it is an actual conversation with your healthcare providers, because if your primary risk is diabetes, or if your primary risk is cardiovascular disease, or if your primary risk is breast cancer, the type of diet that you should follow is going to be very different for each of those endpoints. So then, Irvi, I mean, that's, I mean, the topic of your paper that you both published along with uh, other co-authors was pretty much almost comparing two diets. I mean, I think between the plant-based and the ketogenic diet, uh, maybe, uh, you know, a few comments about the paper and how did you make the comparison? Uh, because, um, you know, I, I, I found the, find, I, uh, the findings were rather intriguing and honestly, I didn't expect them. I, I expected, anyway, I'm not, I don't want to spoil it to listeners. Go ahead and tell us about the paper. So actually Neil and I were talking about this topic like in our meetings together regularly. And the reason it came up was when I was going through like clinicaltrials.gov to look at different cancer specific trials around diet, uh, what struck me most was that there were only like five to six plant-based diet trials and there were 46 or so ketogenic diet trials. And when I look at AICR guidelines, the American Institute of Cancer Research or even American Cancer Society, their guidelines say you should follow a predominantly plant-based diet to prevent cancer and even in cancer survivors. So I saw this big um, discrepancy between what is being studied in interventional studies and what is being um, recommended by guidelines based on all this data available, such as epidemiologic studies. And so that, that disconnect was very interesting to me. And I thought that I think we need to look more into this of why each one is being studied and what the mechanisms behind them are. And then the next thing is that with um, these different diets, I think there are very some factors that are very different in both of them. Though I told you like, you know, each diet can be modified in some ways and they could have some similarities. But um, for instance, fiber, fiber is going to come only from plant foods, whereas it's not going to come from animal-based foods. And we know, you know, the, the data around fiber and cancer risk. Other things like phytochemicals or plant chemicals that have antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties also come from plant foods that are, would, antioxidants would not be present in animal-based foods. So these are some of the things that we know are associated with reduced cancer risk. They're not there in you know, the keto diet versus they're there in the plant-based diet. So Neil, then you guys went and you just, uh, it looks like there was one portion of the paper where you almost... Uh 
like a literature review of what's out there um, from my reading. And um, the findings solidified your preconceived opinions? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I think that we, at least speaking for myself, I, I didn't quite know what we were going to find, to be honest. Um, you know, we have, I mentioned some of our trials that are ongoing, a lot of exercise trials, but we also have uh, a plant-based diet trial in breast cancer uh, that is currently enrolling patients. We have a ketogenic diet trial in breast cancer that is currently enrolling patients, uh, patients with metastatic breast cancer, a very specific type PI3 kinase mutated breast cancer. So, you know, I really went into this um, and, and I'm sure Irvi can vouch for this. When we, when we had these discussions, I kept saying, well, you know, I don't want to shoot myself in the foot in terms of these different trials that we've got going on here uh, and, and close down my keto diet trial because it turns out to be a terrible idea. But fortunately, that didn't uh, turn out to be the case. And, you know, what we, what we did was we approached this first from a biologic standpoint. And, and the first part of the paper really talks about what are the mechanisms through which these, both of these diets can impact various cancer outcomes and um, there, there is a, a figure in the paper that summarizes those, those biologic pathways and the impact of both diets. And then we move on to uh, a review, and Urvi mentioned this, a review of the ongoing trials uh, and completed trials in oncology that have studied either a, a plant-based or a plant-forward diet uh, or a ketogenic diet. And I think what was surprising was just the sheer amount of trials that are ongoing that are testing ketogenic interventions in oncology and the very few plant-based diet trials, despite the observational evidence, which supports plant-based diet, uh, diets uh, in oncology uh, and the guidelines, the, the professional guidelines, as we mentioned, to follow a plant-based diet. So that was sort of our, at the end, we conclude that we really do need more rigorous prospective randomized control trials, testing these diets in a way that we test drugs, as I talked about earlier. Um, but we also need to make sure that we're balanced in terms of what we're prioritizing. And we do need more research in the plant-based space uh, as well to really to validate those observational findings. Irvi, is it easy to do a randomized control trial? Can you assure adherence uh, from I presume, I, I'm again, designing the trial, one arm is plant-based and the other one, whatever you want to eat, like whatever your normally diet is. Uh, how do you, what mechanism to assure the adherence to whatever you prescribe? So we mentioned this briefly in the paper too, that, you know, when we're doing trials like this, how we, it's similar to how we do drug trials where we actually give the drug to the patient and are monitoring compliance. We need to do the same with dietary trials where we are actually yeah. providing meals to patients. So that's part of the way that we are going to be monitoring is we're providing meals from a company called Plantable, at least on uh, my trial and one of Neil's trial. And that company ships them weekly lunches and dinners and we provide them recipes for breakfast. And then we're also coaching them very closely with the help of Plantable and with our own research dietitian and following these patients with 24-hour dietary recalls so we know exactly what they're eating as well. So doing that, dietary that, studies- that, that, Yeah, that part, I, I, I guess, how do you know they're not eating something in addition to what you're sending them? So uh, dietary studies are hard. They're going to be, they are much harder to do. And some of it is you have to trust the patient in terms of what they tell you. And that can be a challenge. Uh, the N NIH has a metabolic chamber. So Kevin Hall does trials there where he, for short periods, like a few weeks, patients actually um, are put in a metabolic chamber and then compare different diets. So that in those studies, they're able to really control what the patient's eating. And there's actually a very interesting study from him looking at a low carb versus a low fat diet. And the same patients are crossed over in the design and um, looking at outcomes and changes in weight, changes in muscle mass, fat-free mass, fat mass, all of those things. So, you know, I'll also add Shadi, because I think and Irvi mentioned this, but um, I, I think it's an, a really important point. The adherence point it is tricky yeah. um, to, to monitor. And we're very open with our, our trial patients. I, I tell our participants that above everything else, we just want you to be honest with us. We're not going to judge. We're not going to chastise. None of this. 
you know, just tell us if you had that slice of cake and, you know, and, and that wasn't part of it, then just tell us. And, and that helps us understand our, how that impacts our biologic endpoints. But beyond that, there are actually things, biomarkers that we can use. So in, in our ketogenic diet trial, we follow daily glucose and daily ketone levels. In our plant-based uh, diet trials, um, we're looking at glucose and insulin. But beyond that, um, more retrospectively, we can go back and measure molecules like carotenoids, for example. Carotenoids are, are found in plant-rich diets and individuals who consume plant-based diets or plant-rich diets will have higher levels of carotenoids in their blood than those who don't. So, and, and now there are non-invasive ways of measuring like spectroscopy through the skin, for example. So there are ways to biologically monitor adherence as well. Yeah, and that's actually literally was going to be my second question is that, you know, we all know the, you know, the hard clinical endpoints, whether it is a, a patient without cancer or a patient with cancer in terms of whatever, survival, all of the other endpoints. But I'm very curious, uh, Irvi, about these biological surrogates that you really look for, whether it's in the blood, in the stool, in the urine, wherever it is. Maybe what are the ones that are you really, as a scientist and a researcher, you really excited about where you really feel there may be some role in those, whether in myeloma specifically or in cancer in general? So we talk a little bit about this in the paper, I think, where in the microbiome, we talk about how butyrate levels or short-chain fatty acids through a plant-based diet may be associated with reduced cancer risk and through the keto diet, which will be ketone bodies. So that's one thing that can be looked at in the stool and also in plasma. Um, other things is like, again, insulin, insulin-like growth factor one, adiponectin, leptin, these are factors all associated with, for instance, myeloma, the increased risk. So these are things that can again be studied in the blood of patients to see if we're modulating them or changing them for the better. I got to ask you a tough question uh, because I keep thinking about this. Um, Another one? <laughs> Another uh, no, no, th this is, this is you, you're going to appreciate that because you alluded to it, actually. You alluded to it earlier yourself. I think a lot of us, um, when we do this, we want to be able to apply whatever we find to the majority of patients because, you know, you want to help the most patients that you get. Yeah. Um, so one item is the research, but the other item is how scalable it is to all of the patients. And breast cancer is a perfect example as so many women affected by that. And of course, some men as well. When you design these studies, do you think about, I want an intervention that I can really give to the hundreds of thousands of women who are diagnosed with this disease globally or in the US? Yeah, that, that, that is a tough question, but such an important question, Shadi, because when, when we, in, in our research program, uh, we do design highly, highly controlled trials that are not implementable on a global scale necessarily. Um, but my view on this is that if we're going to invest the time and the effort to implement a broad intervention or several broad in interventions, we should know that they work. And we can uh, get to that question or to that answer first with these highly controlled trials. Then the next step is to go to our collaborators in behavioral science, in implementation science, and determine ways to apply these highly controlled interventions in a way that may be slightly diluted, but not in a way that gets away from what the, what the intervention of interest is. So for example, and, and we're trying to do this now, we've got this clinical trial program with these highly controlled interventions, but in the last few years, we've started a clinical program called the MSK Healthy Living Program, uh, which is a clinically implemented program on the large scale. We've now enrolled uh, over 600 patients in the last two years, where we try to rapidly take our findings from the research side and through clinicians like a clinical nutritionist or a clinical exercise physiologist uh, and others, we try to advise patients uh, based on the type of cancer they have and their particular risk profile, what type of lifestyle interventions our research is suggesting to be the most helpful. And we may not send that particular, those 500 patients 
a treadmill, but we can certainly advise them the type of exercise they should be doing either at home or at the gym. Uh, or if somebody has something like uh, cancer cachexia or sarcopenic obesity, and they need to be focusing on resistance training and muscle building rather than aerobic activity, our exercise physiologist will advise them to do those sorts of uh, interventions, exercise interventions. So we can take what we've learned from these highly controlled trials and then bring them to the clinic and advise patients uh, in a way that is implementable. Yeah, I mean, I, I find this kind of research really fascinating. It, it's, not, it's not as easy as some people might think of it on the surface. It's actually extremely challenging. And, you know, just us discussing it back and forth, it shows you how difficult it is. So I really congratulate you on all of the work you're doing. I'll be following your work uh, closely because I'm really interested in this. So what's on the horizon for both of you in the next uh, couple of years, uh, Irvi? What are you, um, you know, uh, what are you working on? Are you trying to like, you know, what, what, what couple of projects you want to share with listeners that you're very excited about that are coming down the pike? Sure. So I'm really excited about our pilot study that's completed enrollment. And we're going to present the data at the International Myeloma Workshop meeting in a month. And then uh, maybe updates at ASH um, we will submit to. But uh, I think um, we're, we're seeing some interesting findings there. And, uh, you know, we'll talk more about it when we have those results. But I think um, that is starting to give us some mechanistic understandings around diet and the risk of progression. And then secondary to those studies, we've developed a few more studies, which are going to be uh, randomized and also open later this year. Um, there, so the pilot study is called the Nutrivention study, the Nutrivention pilot, and then the next um, three studies are Nutrivention two, three, and four. Uh, Nutrivention two is a telehealth study, so I'm excited about that because this is again a study that's going to be widely applicable, and we're partnering with a foundation called the Health Tree Foundation. So. They are a foundation for patients with plasma cell disorders. And through this um, foundation, we're going to be able to have patients across the country take part. And it's a short, simple study where they would ship us you know, samples and we would um, connect with them virtually. So we don't really need to have them come to a particular site. I think a success of such trials could lead to more quickly developing trials and doing things more trans, uh, in a faster way than only at one side. And then our Nutrivention 3 trial is based on the findings of the pilot, and it's going to be a randomized study with a placebo arm and a supplement arm too, because some patients don't like to make dietary changes and see if, you know, how, how these arms compare. And that's a 150 patient study that will open at two sites, and it's going to um, give us a lot more detail into mechanism in a bigger population. And then our Nutrivention 4 is in the survivorship space. So this would be the first one in myeloma where patients are already on maintenance therapy. So we're able to look at the effects of maintenance therapy and uh, diet combined. And then, so these are our interventional trials that I'm really excited about. And then in terms of um, one of our papers, which is on MedArchive now, and you know it's not yet published, but it's on MedArchive and you can see that um, we have looked at sustained MRD negativity or complete remission rates between um, patients on lenalidomide maintenance. And we looked at the microbiome in these patients and said, who is more likely to be sustained MRD negative or be in complete remission for a longer period of time? And we see that uh, patients who have higher butyrate levels and relative abundance of butyrate producers seems to seem to be more likely to be associated with sustained MRD negativity and also with diet correlating with the butyrate levels. So uh, even though it's a small study, we're still seeing associations. I think this needs to be explored further, but I, 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 I'm excited to see that even in you know, the response setting, we're able to see some of these links with diet and the microbiome. That's amazing. That's that's a huge portfolio you've got there, um, uh, Neil. What's what's going on down the pike for you in the next uh, couple of years? Yeah, I, I share Irvi's enthusiasm about some of the ongoing um, uh, randomized control trials that we've got uh, in breast cancer. Um, you know, we are looking. I, in general, our trials fall into uh, I would say three categories. We're looking at dietary modification. We're looking at exercise or exercise with dietary modification. And we're actually also looking at medications 
that can mimic some of the effects of diet and exercise. Um, so we have a plant-based diet plus exercise trial. The meals are provided by Plantable, as Irvi mentioned, and that trial is supported by the American Cancer Society. That's for women with stage one through three hormone receptor positive breast cancer on hormone therapy. And the primary endpoint there is, can we reduce the amount of uh, adipose tissue inflammation in the breast itself um, through this intervention? We've got another, as an example, an exercise-only trial in patients with metastatic breast cancer, where we're looking at five different doses of exercise to identify the optimal dose of exercise. And that's particularly important in metastatic disease, where there may be a threshold of how much an individual can exercise. So rather than telling somebody exercise as much as you can, it's a lot you know, more helpful, I would say, to, to give a person a goal, a specific goal, and say more than that is not helpful or less than that is you should achieve to a, a you should strive for something that is um, a certain level or amount of exercise. So that's our dose finding study of exercise in the metastatic setting. And then finally, as an example, we're testing a new type of drug. It's called a MET-AP2 inhibitor um, that was originally developed for the treatment of obesity syndromes like Prader-Willi syndrome. Um, that drug also has anti-tumor effects. So it reduces insulin resistance. It optimizes uh, adipokine signaling. These are hormones that are secreted from fat cells, but it also reduces neovascularization in tumors. Uh, and it has other anti-proliferative effects in tumors. So it's, it's the ideal sort of combination of mechanisms for obesity-related cancers and we're combining that drug with standard breast cancer therapy and metastatic triple negative breast cancer in a phase two trial. So I'm very excited about this awesome. approach. This is amazing. My last question, I'm going to let you go after you do your final comments. But my last question is actually, I just thought about it because when I was, at, you know, well, uh, sometimes the dietary that we, the diet that we recommend, whether it is simply drinking grape juice uh, or whatever it is, might impact the absorption and the metabolism of some of the chemotherapy drugs that we actually give, obviously the oral chemotherapy. Um, do you have, uh, are you integrated with uh, pharmacists that really look at this? Because to me, it, it seems to me that it's very difficult for us as oncologists to keep track with all of these uh, impact. Irvi, uh, I mean, right? I mean, sometimes you, know, you can't really have something with, you know, the, the polypharmacy, the classic thing that we talk about. Yeah. Very good question. I think it just goes to show how these trials are so complex and we need a multidisciplinary team. So for instance, with the trial that also has supplements, we've partnered with the integrative medicine service to have their input as well. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's, it's not one, these trials can't be just done by one person and it takes a whole team or village to do them. No, I mean, kudos. I mean, I really, I really feel uh, these like simple things. And with the, if you're taking, you know, whatever, like a blood thinner plus uh, chemotherapy, and then uh, you have the diet and you have to look at all of these things. Any other, anything I forgot to ask you, anything you want to share with listeners? We'll start with you, Neil. Any last comments, final thoughts that you'd like to leave listeners with or anything I may have forgotten to ask you or inquire about? Well, I certainly think that was that was a very thorough discussion. So nothing that you particularly forgot. I'll just, you know, make a comment that I, I think that it when it comes down to where are we at right now, it can be very challenging for a person who's going through a cancer treatment or a cancer diagnosis um, to implement uh, lifestyle changes. And we hear this every day. We hear people tell us, I mean, just today I, I heard I had a patient of mine tell me that. I don't know what to eat. I'm so confused. There's, there's so much information out there. I just, I give up. I just don't know what to do. And I think that the, the message that we want to send out clearly right now is that until we have some of the results of our randomized controlled trials, there are a few central tenants that we know are associated uh, with better cancer outcomes or reduced risk. And I would say primarily avoiding obesity or hyperadiposity. Ideally, if you can measure your weight or body mass index, but a one step better would be to measure your body composition. And if you can keep your body fat levels less than 30%, um, that is an optimal uh, goal for cancer. And then to eat a diet that is plant forward, high in fiber, and to engage in re regular physical activity 
Uh, and that could be up to 150 minutes per week of uh, aerobic activity. Those are the, the central goals. And once we've achieved those central goals, then we can move forward in refining and personalizing the interventions with the data from these trials that are ongoing. Thank you, Neil. Orvi, any last thoughts, final comments, anything you'd like to share? Sure, I think uh, Neil summarized it beautifully. Um, a couple of things I just wanted to add was like, I think cancer has seen um, significant changes across the decades of, you know, treatment in terms of also, and so we as oncologists also need to change our thinking. So I think right in the beginning when, you know, oncology became a field, the issues around chemotherapy were nausea, vomiting, cachexia, weight loss, things like that. And so it's very hard to study dietary interventions or even ask patients to do that because we just want to get them through the treatment. And now as we have treatments that have improved so much that we actually have patients living a long time, many patients cured of their disease, we're seeing um, comorbidities often being the cause of death too. And sometimes we're also seeing that uh, patients want this information because they want to know how they can optimize and improve their health overall. So I think the need is now more than ever for oncologists to also be thinking about um, lifestyle and a holistic approach than just looking at the chemotherapy. And the last other thing I wanted to add is like we are in the era of immune therapies and immune therapies we know are you know dependent on the immune system. And we know that diet and things like fiber do affect the immune system. And so there may be an interplay here that has not been studied enough. So I think there is much more importance or relevance for the diet and the effects on the microbiome and immune system than there were before when we didn't have immune therapies. And a good example of that also, like uh, based on our work, but also in melanoma with checkpoint inhibitors, you know, fiber increases the response rates for checkpoint inhibitors, but probiotics may be reducing it. So I think there's lots to learn out there and this is a rapidly evolving field and we need to give it more attention. I can't agree more. I, I just listening to you, I can, this is a difficult research to do. This is really for those who are listening to this podcast. I, I hope they appreciate how difficult it is to conduct this, these types of studies and to execute on them and to take them to fruition and then to find interventions. These are not easy. So congratulations on all of the work you're doing. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and I look forward to uh, learning more from you. All right, everyone, I appreciate your support. Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to let me know how I'm doing by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. You can also visit my website, shadinabhan.com, and you could let me know any thoughts or ideas. If you are a loyal listener, just let me know if you want the amazing Healthcare Unfiltered t-shirt, which you can use for exercise. And you just heard on today's podcast how important exercise is. Uh, don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. You can watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Before I let you go, I'd like to leave you with one of the sayings by Socrates. I am the wisest man alive, for I know one thing, and that is that I know nothing. Until next time, take care.